Welcome to Short Course, episode 85, for December 9th, 2022. I'm your host, Ben Perry. Wanted to start off this episode with a bit of an update on my candidacy for Area 6 director. Uh, So I submitted my application, my nominating petition with 54 signatures on it in August, uh, August 14th, according to my email. And I got a response back pretty quickly saying I'd be told as soon as it was verified. When 14 weeks later, I had not heard anything back. Last week on December 1st, I followed up to ask what the status was, and I got a quick response saying that they had just forgotten to email me back and that my petition has been verified, all the signatures are good, and I am on the ballot, or will be, in when the election comes. So that is a done deal. Um, I have every intention of continuing to, to run, and so that, that process has started. The actual election will not actually take place until June 15th. It'll last until July 16th, so basically a 31-day voting window. And right now, the only candidate, other candidate that I'm aware of is Kyle Stevens out of Florida. It's unknown whether or not Bruce Wells will be running. If he does, then the election will almost certainly go to a runoff, uh, unless one of us manages to get 51% of the vote. The runoff will happen two months, give or take, depending on how quickly the election firm notifies USPSA, and then USPSA notifies the election firm of the runoff. But it'll be about two months, and then the election or the runoff will be an additional 30 day voting period. So we may not know the actual outcome of the election until the, the fall, but we'll see. Whatever happens, happens. I do want to remind folks that the bylaws say that you have to be a member continuously for a year on May 1st of next year to be eligible to vote. So basically, you had to. Be a member of May on May 1st of 2022 and maintain that membership through the election continuously without any lapse to be eligible to vote. Uh, obviously, next year, Area 6 is up for re-election. The president will also be up for, for re-election since this will be the end of Yimin Lin's term since Foley was removed in the end of 2021. So technically, there were more than two years left on his presidency thus the calling of a special election, but obviously the special election didn't happen for almost a year after Foley was removed, and so this this final partial term for uh, Yimin is going to be a short one. So he'll be up for re-election. I haven't heard, I don't know of anybody who's put their name in to run against him, but presumably someone will. Area 8, again, uh, I don't know if anybody is running in that election yet in Area 6. So if you want, if you are anywhere in the country and want to vote for the next president, or you are in Area 6 or Area 8 and want to vote for your area director, then keep your membership. And Area 2 and Area 5 are the ones that will be up for re-election in the summer of 2024. So if you want to be eligible to vote for those, you need to be a USPSA member on May 1st of 2023 and maintain that through 2024. Second, uh, an update from last week's podcast. In that episode, I talked about the rules for this outlaw match, the World Pistol Shootout that is happening in Texas in March. Notably, uh, I probably should have said that was I was commenting on version 1.4 of the rules, uh, which were actually posted the the day before I recorded. And in on YouTube, the match director of the match, Kyle Smith, posted a comment saying, "Thanks for listing some feedback on the rule set." 
I'll go over it with the rules committee and see if we can't improve it in advance of the match. Uh, and then later on, we had a little back and forth, and he said, I absolutely don't want this to be a Bubba's tactical pistol match type of outlaw match, so these rules need to be squared away. This is a cash prize match, and I don't want that cash being decided by a hit plate only rotating 60 degrees, and the rule says 90 to count as a hit. FYI, we've incorporated some of your feedback into the next draft of the rulebook we're working on. So I, I genuinely was not trying to put this particular match on blast. Like I said in the episode, I, I think it's it's more interesting to look at this as a lens through which USPSA rules can be viewed, but uh, I'm happy to offer hopefully constructive criticism and and make the match the best it can be. The registration is open, and so keep an eye on it. Look for the, the updated version of the rules, and if it seems like something that's that's interesting to you, sign up and shoot it. As I've mentioned in the past, I am signed up for the Pan American Extreme IPSC match in Florida at the end of January. So this is the the people that normally put on the Extreme Euro Open are coming here to run what is is uh, is that same flavor of match here in the U.S. Getting to shoot a, an Extreme Euro would be one of the matches high on my list if I could if I could go travel uh, internationally and, and shoot more matches. Well, shoot any matches internationally. But the fact that they're they're coming here means even though it is going to be in, in January, which is not the ideal time to to be shooting with the uh, with the weather in terms of being able to to train up for it, uh, I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna go. I just I can't pass this up. They've been trying to put this match on for a couple of years, much like the world shoot. It it's been delayed and delayed because of COVID and travel restrictions and and whatnot. But it's on. It's happening in a little over or a little under two months, and uh, I'm looking forward to it. I am signed up to shoot that in production, so in preparation for that, I've been shooting all my matches in limited minor under USPSA rules. So I've just been shooting my my stock twos with stock magazines and starting double single with 15 rounds in the magazine, and I'm I'm enjoying the heck out of it. It, it definitely is interesting coming back from from shooting a red dot and trying to apply the idea of shooting target focus to irons. It is. When it works, it is noticeably faster. It is it is very interesting to see how quickly you can shoot and still call your shots, especially on things like swingers, without having to take that three tenths, four tenths of a second to pull your eyes back and focus on on the front sight. That you just you see it, you perceive it, but it's blurry, overlaid with the target, and it's been yeah, it's been an interesting, challenging training uh, exercise. Uh, working on it in dry fire especially is is a little tricky especially with with reduced scale targets but uh i'm i'm working on it i'm i'm really enjoying it and i'm i'm enjoying shooting the matches that way this past weekend we shot the sir walter gun club monthly uspsa match which was i think a, a really good set of stages unfortunately dogged by intermittent rain and even when it wasn't raining the the footing was definitely a little slippery unfortunately but the the stages I think were were some of the better ones that we've done in a while, just as a as a whole. You know, all all the stages I think were were quite good. And there were a few times where I was picking mags up out of the mud, and with production mags, I was basically just able to brush off the mud, not worry too much about reliability because they're running stock followers, stock springs. I did have the easy off base pads, so if one felt a little gritty, I could just pop that off. I didn't have to mess with any screws or pins to get a, an extended base pad off, so I definitely appreciated that. 
And yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't know. I don't know how to say it, except if you haven't tried shooting a, a, a match with 15 rounds in a, in a stock gun, give it a try. It, it doesn't seem like it is that much. 15 is that much of a difference from 10, but it is, it, it definitely makes a difference. And there are, there are definitely places where if I had 23 rounds in the mag, my stage plan would be not necessarily easier, but I would just, I would have much more margin for error. So for example, in, in particular on the 32 round field course, the way that it was set up, I basically, yeah, again, being 32 rounds, obviously I'm going to have to do two reloads somewhere in there. And so my, my plan was to draw to three targets. You could see from the start positions that's six rounds, run over to a second position, shoot five. So shoot 11 rounds in the first mag, run over to the other back position, shoot uh, four rounds there, and then run to the front corner, shoot three. Yeah, so that would be seven. And then I would reload and I would have 14 rounds to the end of the stage with 16 in the gun. They're really, I, I could have stuck a reload somewhere else, but basically at that point, if I, if I got the movement right and everything, there was an unbroken sequence of 14 shots that I could take without really having any, any breaks. And I, I visualized that in and I knew coming in that, that I had two makeups and wouldn't, you know, it right after the reload makeup on steel, shoot a paper target, another makeup on steel. And so I knew from that point on, I had to go one for one for the rest of the magazine. And maybe this isn't interesting to people, but, but in that moment, sort of feeling that, that sense of, okay, you, you got to hit every single one of these shots. It was, I found it interesting. I found it challenging. I found it rewarding. And so knowing that I had a little bit of margin for error, you know, it's not like these, especially when you shoot 10 round production and you, you end up shooting to 10 a lot. And it wasn't, it wasn't that constantly throughout, but it's just, I knew I had a, a slim margin for error. I threw away what little I had. And then from then on out, I just had to be really precise and clean. And yeah, I, all I can say is I, I enjoy it. I mean, I know I've been talking about it for a while. I think at this point there's, there's, there's so little interest in production. I, I don't really see that there's any harm in, in trying to revise it. I mean, at this point, you can make almost any modification to a production gun, internal, external, adding weight, adding a flashlight. The only thing you can't do is stick an 11th round in the magazine. It, uh, yeah, it's, it's just bizarre. But uh, the other thing that, that came up in, in conversation that I've been thinking about is, is just the idea of, of practicality when it comes to magazines and the fact that in most cases, when you go all the way to a 140 millimeter magazine, you know, people say, oh, well, you know, why don't, why don't we... You know, that, that seems like a good length, even, even for stock guns, you know, maybe, maybe that should just be the, the default, just, you know, however many you can fit in a 140 mil magazine. And there definitely seems like a trade-off there where if you had to choose between a magazine where you could fit one extra round or a magazine that locked back when it was empty, there, most people would say for applying this to anything outside of just a, a pure game, having the gun lock back when it's empty is a good thing. Now, I know limited guns, open guns, most of those don't. They don't lock back when they're empty. A lot of them don't even have functioning slide stops just because you don't want the risk of it getting bumped on. I get that. Those are meant to be race guns. But to me, it just seems like, especially in production, in carry optics, which are both theoretically supposed to be stock gun divisions, then having the rules set up in a way that encourages people to have magazines that are not 
of the sort that you would actually run in a defensive firearm, right? Like for my guns that I actually carry, if the gun is empty, I want to know that because the last thing I want is the slide to close and I'm going to take one more shot in some kind of self-defense situation and I get a click because it didn't lock open. So to me, if it were a situation where I was looking at magazines for a self-defense gun and you told me, well, you know, this one holds 12, but it'll lock back on, on empty or this one holds 13, but it doesn't lock back. I'm going to take the 12. And, and that seems like the kind of thing that we should incentivize with stock gun divisions. And so to me, it's just another argument in favor of something like having a 15 round cap. I've heard the discussion of perhaps production should just be however many bullets you can fit in the magazine with the magazine in the gun and it fits the box, which again is you're, you're back to you buy the gun and then you're buying base pads to add capacity. You're getting flat followers. You're getting gamer springs. To me, that's not the interesting part. I, for me, and I think for a lot of the world, shooting the guns in a relatively stock configuration is the interesting part. And when I say the rest of the world, I mean, if you look at the numbers at the world shoot, production was the biggest division. Open was like 10 shooters behind it. So production was something like 340. Open was like 330 shooters. If you combine both the production optics divisions, I think together they were something like 260. So it is it is a question worth pondering how in the U.S. production has become such a dead division and yet in every other country that has IPSC production is if not the most popular division close to it what are we doing differently that has caused production to completely die where other countries they haven't like I said something we're thinking about since the last episode the world shoot wrapped up and we have the the final results Figured I'd just go through some some quick high level finishes, just the the things that that I thought were interesting. So uh, starting with the teams, U.S. was the first out of nineteen open teams, and the U.S. was first out of five open lady teams, second out of five in open senior, in production light. The U.S. finished first out of three, and in production optics regular, we finished second out of seventeen. So obviously much more competition in in regular production optics. Uh, PO Lady, we were third out of three. PO Senior, we were first out of five. Production, we were fourth out of 25. So there again, 25 production teams versus 19 open teams. So production by teams was definitely the most popular division at this world shoot as well. Uh, Standard, the U.S. was second out of 17 standard teams and second out of two for the ladies standard team. As far as individual finishes, Christian Seiler won first in open. Uh, Chris Tilley put in a, a pretty respectable third. Obviously local to me, good guy, runs really excellent matches around here. Uh, Casey Eusebio fourth. In production, Eric won it. It's pretty much what he does at, at World Shoots, and he decided production was going to be the division this year. Mason Lane was the top U.S. shooter in sixth. JJ Ricazzo won production optics. Luke Cow won production optics light. And in standard, Nils was the top US shooter in third. And I gotta say, respect to Blake McGez for coming in fifth. I, I don't keep up with a, a lot of the, the pro shooter guys, but I'm pretty sure he's an elected representative in his state and not shooting a whole terrible much. So uh 
to be able to dust off the blaster and, and go shoot fifth in the world and in standard is uh, not nothing. That said, I wasn't there. I haven't really talked to anybody that was there, so I don't have a lot of firsthand knowledge about how the match was. The stages looked okay. Nothing looked really crazy, amazing. Um, definitely felt like a, a lot of fairly safe shooting, but again, it was just, just from the videos I've seen. A lot of very much kind of go to the spot, shoot hard targets type type stages. A couple crazy movers. The 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 plates on the slider definitely looks like something uh, I'd never seen before. So we might we might see more of those in big matches from here on out. But the one thing that I did see discussion of, and and I thought I'd sort of chime in on, was there there has been some discussion this week about the the world shoot team policy and what USPSA does to facilitate shooters getting to world shoots, in particular, what they get paid, how, how much compensation and assistance with, with travel they get. What I have heard from multiple sources, so this seems probably pretty concrete, although I don't have it firsthand per se, was this year, anyone that got a slot from the US, which was 63 shooters, so we we sent 63 representatives of the US. Everybody got a got the match fee paid by USPSA, so that's 500 bucks. They are eligible to submit for reimbursement after the fact of up to $500 worth of travel expenses and then they got two team USA jerseys. So call those 100 bucks each. For a trip to Thailand, so this is a, a six-day match, opening ceremonies, closing ceremonies. I mean, this is, you're looking at 10, 11, 12 days. This is, this is a long trip, long flights, many nights in a hotel. And that's, 500 bucks is, I mean, it's not nothing, but it, it's pretty close to nothing in terms of the, the expenses. I mean, I have to imagine five, six, seven thousand dollars out of pocket was not an unreasonable cost for something like this. And it, there was there was some discussion, some leaked screenshots of the World Shoot group chat talking about what other teams were getting. Basically it was, you know, in the in the range of two to three thousand. A lot of countries were just paying travel and hotel for all of their athletes. There was some discussion about the 2018 shotgun world shoot in France, where apparently those people got nothing but two Team USA jerseys, and the 2019 rifle world shoot didn't even get jerseys, and that was in Sweden. So again, both matches where you're you're having to travel internationally. Now, is the handgun world shoot a more prestigious match than the the shotgun and rifle world shoots? Yes, those those are definitely still being built up by IPSC, but I, I foresee them continuing to be uh, definitely well-attended world-level matches where I think the U.S. should should do our best to represent. And obviously there's been some some discussion in the past about how do you actually select the teams for that, given that we don't have dedicated rifle and shotgun nationals, but leaving leaving that issue to the side, I it looks to me like we should probably be doing more to help our team athletes out. I've seen discussion saying that in the past, the, the, if you got a slot on the team, you got something like two to $3,000 in travel expenses. And again, that was what, five or eight years ago now. So that money went a little bit further. 
to me, if we keep this policy where, yeah, we're, you can earn a slot, but you're basically on your own with the travel, that is that is going to significantly affect the level of competitiveness of, of the U.S. at international shooting events. And I mean, you could say that that's, that's fine. We don't really care that the average B, C-class guy shooting club matches doesn't really care about how the U.S. does on the world stage. I mean, you could say that, but I don't know that it's true. I, I think everybody enjoys seeing our country go out and and be a force to be reckoned with on the world stage, especially if you're interested in the sport. You want to be able to follow the Olympics of our sport and watch the medal counts and the scores and all this and, and feel invested and feel like we're putting our, our best team forward. And I think paying people who qualify for the match 500 bucks on a match that probably costs 5000 to to travel to that's it, it we we can do more now caveat on this i don't know anybody who has gone through this process i i don't i'm not an insider i don't know people who are on the teams or yeah, I, I haven't seen the the process from the inside this is just i'm just a guy reading what's posted on the internet but what was announced in in 2020 was that the the way that the US handles world shoot slots is that we were going to field a team in the seven IPSC divisions, classic, open, production optics, light, production optics, production, standard, and revolver. Each of those teams would be picked. They would pick the best four people based on the the point system of who had shot and finished well at the respective nationals, U.S. and IPSC nationals from the previous two years. So you take the, the, your percentage finish at the best three of those four matches, add the, those up, and that becomes your number of points. And they would just go down the list in each division and call people up and say, hey, you've made the revolver team or the classic team or the standard team, obviously standard being based on limited. Um, I don't know the exact details how they figured out production optics light versus production optics based on carry optics. But the idea being that at most there are, we're going to send 28 people seven teams times four people on the the teams that will actually represent the US in the team competition as well as those are the four best shooters from the US in those divisions so basically if anybody has a chance of making it on the podium of in the individual results those are those are the people after that of the 52 slots that the US has allocated like i said we ended up sending 63 shooters but beyond those 28 all the other slots would just go down the list of people who had finished well at at those uh, three of those four matches, and they would just be offered a slot, not on the team per se, but they would be offered a, a world shoot slot. And then from the people who were registered, if a team could be formed, then it would be. So for example, we fielded a open senior team because there were three or more open senior men who wanted to who had gotten slots through the process, they weren't preferentially given them, but they they had, as they went down the list of people who wanted world shoot slots, they were on there. And so there was there was three or more of them, and so they just registered as a as a team. But you have these these sort of two tiers in the system of the the way the US does it, where you've got the non the non-category teams, the just the straight open production standard teams. And to me, those those are the people we should really be helping out because in a lot of cases, those are guys that have really hustled. Obviously they, they had to sh- make it to three or four 
nationals in the the two preceding years, if they want to get the most points, they're going to shoot the U.S. nationals in that division and then IPSC nationals in the division that they want to go to the world shoot in. So they've already they're already out that money, which I mean, to be honest, a lot of us would at least go to the U.S. nationals, if not the IPSC nationals. But to me, the the actual teams, the individuals that 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 qualify in those top four slots, they should probably be. We should probably be looking at something on the order of just covering airfare and hotel. Now, obviously, you can't stay at the whatever Ritz Carlton Grand, whatever. I mean, it's got to be a, a reasonable hotel. But but if it can be to the point where yeah, you shoot the nationals in in the divisions, and you qualify for the world shoot team. Then basically, your your ticket is paid. I think that would be a lot more appealing, and it would actually be a prize worth really striving for. It would actually incentivize people to set their sights not just on competing and winning multiple U.S. nationals, which it seems like a lot of people in the U.S. are focused on now, but in actually focusing on one division, specializing in it, because obviously for the IPSC nationals. You can only shoot that in one division. So if you want to make a run at being on a world shoot team, you have to pick ahead of time which division that's that's going to be. I think an incentive structure like that, where if you make it onto the team, you've got basically a free ride to the world shoot. I think you would see a different level of competition. And just doing a little bit of back of the napkin math, if we assume that we're actually going to field seven teams, which in reality, it's probably going to be more like five. That's all that we uh, fielded this this world shoot because we didn't have a a classic or a revolver team but let's say we're going to field all seven teams times four people that's 28 people if we pay each of them let's call it five grand to cover all their expenses that's still only 140 grand out of an organization that has a top line revenue of three million dollars a year i mean how much do we lose on a nationals if we can if we could take if we could have one less nationals but actually compensate our world shoot teams I would really be interested what the membership would think of that. I mean, obviously there would still, I'm not saying one last nationals in the sense of a division doesn't have nationals, but just combine the nationals into fewer events and save some of that money for other purposes. Um, You know, to me, there's some discussion about getting sponsors and have the team USA jerseys have sponsor logos on them. To me, that's uh, that's a non-starter. I, I think we, we are the biggest region we should be able to fund the ability to send our teams. Yes, it will require careful budgeting. Yes, we will need to actually dedicate the resources and not just kind of treat the world shoot as an as an afterthought. But yeah, to me, the idea that you've put all this work in, you've qualified to represent the U.S. on the world stage, and we will give you enough money to cover a flight to like Boise, but not to Thailand much less hotel, rental car, cabs, food, all, all that. Oh, and we won't even just give you the money up front and trust you to be an adult. You got to submit receipts afterward. There's a there's a contempt sort of baked into that, that, that oh, well, you know, we don't necessarily trust you. We got to see the receipts. And again, I, I think part of doing this would be focusing on the people that actually qualify for the team slots. I don't think every 50 to 60 people who get any slot I don't think those people should necessarily get the five grand. At that point, if you if you make the team, that's you know that's the reward. Otherwise, if you have the ability to self fund a trip to the world shoot, then that's on you. And at that point, you know the U.S. should follow a process and offer people those slots. But if you don't make the team, then you're on the hook for your for your own travel in the same way that 
we don't expect people to be you know paid to to go to nationals or any other match at that point if you haven't made the team it's on you this is essentially a discretionary fun thing for you maybe it's a goal of your life but hey you're gonna have to front the cash but to me if if we can really focus as an organization on making it so that guys that can put in the work and do the work and shoot well locally in the u.s at the at the u.s and the ipsc nationals then if they make it onto the team then they got a full ride I think that would be worthwhile. And again, compared to the, the the amount of money that flows through USPSA, I don't think it's a it's it's an unreasonable amount to dedicate if we decide that representing ourselves well on the world stage is important to us, which that's a real question is do the members of USPSA care? And obviously I care. Uh, I've really been surprised how much attention the world shoot has gotten over uh, the, the past few weeks on social media. But again, I don't know if I'm in a bubble and I just see more of these things. But to me, I would be very interested in in what the membership thinks about, is this a worthwhile use of, of membership funds? Like I said, to me, going the advertiser route, mm, not doing it. But should we be, do, do, does the membership think that we should be more generous to the guys that have worked hard and, and earned a spot on the actual teams or not. And, and obviously I'm on the side of, yes, we, we definitely should, because it affects the people who can actually go ahead and represent us. There, there are people who might not be able to float it out of pocket, but if, the, if they can actually get more assistance from USPSA, I mean, this is on top of getting time off work and everything else, but I think, I think we would definitely see a different type of shooter who maybe isn't as able to float the the finances of it, but can, but is at a different stage in their life where they're, you know, they don't necessarily have the money just to fly around the world and go shoot a match in Thailand. But if they can get the time off work and USPSA can cover the bill, then then they can actually go and, and represent us. Well, that wraps up this episode of Short Course. My email is ben at barryshooting.com. Talk to you next time.